Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. The scripture reading today is from the book of Psalms, chapter 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I don't know if you were paying attention to that reading, but it's a happy note, hey? Uh, gosh, I spend my life training peacemakers, and so they give me the passage where God sounds like a genocidal warrior. Um, so thank you, uh, Antioch staff, for the great gift. Hey, um, I, was sitting, I was sitting here, and I was like, man, one of the things I love about Antioch is how many people lead us. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like so many churches, there's just like one dude and another dude and maybe a third dude who lead us. And uh, it's just not necessarily the case at Antioch. And I just love like the hundreds of people that guide us, um, not just in worship, but in our expression as a family. It's a beautiful thing, I think, that's happening here. It's something that's really unique and rare. I was also, as I was preparing for my thoughts this morning, um, just, I feel honored. My name, my name is Jer, and I'm not a pastor here. I'm a part of the family who, um, from time to time, gets to teach here. And um, I get to teach as a part of a, a team approach of teaching here at Antioch, which I just think is so cool. Uh, you know, like you have the, the optimism and the enthusiasm of a Linda when she preaches. You've got the soulfulness of an Amy when she preaches. You've got like the quick wit, intelligence, historical, theological analysis with a Sean. Um, you've, got, you've got the pastoral impulse of, uh, of Pete Kelly. You've got the tenderness of Pete Santucci. And from time to time, they unleash me to come in here and, um, and just disrupt all the things, you know? And, um, but again, what a, cool, uh, what a cool family to be a part of where we believe that there's not a voice. There's lots of voices that actually help us follow the king better, you know? So I'm humbled to be a part of it. Um, the... The other thing I think, um, I think is an advantage of team teaching is that we, 
we don't look at these moments as like isolated moments. We look at them as a continuous stream of consciousness. There's a thing, there's a story that we're unfolding together as Antioch that um, as we continue to tap in, it, it's doing something to us slowly. Some of us walk out of a Sunday and we've had a euphoric epiphany and it changes our lives radically. Most of us, this is a slow germination as we're trying to discover as authentic a Jesus as we can and a faith that's worth our lives and it's slow work, you know? And so it's my joy here uh, this morning to pull some threads from what I think Pete did so well last week. Um, if you're curious around the scriptures and what is this word, um, I think Pete did a great job uh, of helping us maybe see and understand the scriptures from Jesus' perspective. The reason I think that's important is because, you know, of all of us in the room, we all have a different way of approaching the scriptures. We've all been socialized to understand what this is differently. And so it's important as a family that we actually find some kind of unifying principles around what this is so that we can approach it together, um, you know, as a family. And so, um, so here's what I want you to do. There's a Bible probably in front of you, or if you didn't bring your own, or it's on your device. Um, the passage was Psalm 2. I don't like it, so we're going to go to 1 Samuel 8. Um, and uh, no, we'll start, we'll start in Psalm 2. Uh, but find in the Bible right now, literally the tangible thing, phone or this, find 1 Samuel 8. And when you've got it, turn to like four people around you, slap hands with them and say, let's go. All right, let's get fired up. So go ahead and find it right now. Take a minute. Take a minute. 1 Samuel 8. When you find it, slap hands with four people and say, let's go. All right. More hand slapping. There needs to be more hand slapping in the place. Let's go. All right. Jesus, uh, Jesus as a rabbinical student, would have walked into a classroom and his, he would have found a slate on his table or his desk or whatever it was, and the slate would have been covered in honey. And then um, the rabbi who would have been teaching would have invited he and his buddies to pick up the slate and lick it clean, reading Psalm 119 that talks about the scriptures being more exotic, sweeter than honey, right? So there was this understanding that Jesus had that the scriptures do a thing. They're, they, they transform us. It's not a dull, dry letters on it. Like this is a living, alive thing that is exotic. It's wild and it's doing something to us, okay? And so um, imagine with, this, with the taste of honey on our mouths, here's what Pete said in terms of how Jesus understood the scriptures last week. He said, Jesus would have seen the scriptures and he would have had access, of course, to the Hebrew scriptures or what we tend to call the Old Testament. Uh, he wouldn't have had the New Testament as a story in which he is the main character, which is a shift from the way that I was maybe trained to read it in which, yeah, it speaks to Jesus, but I like to understand myself as the main character, that Jesus helps me understand how to be the main character better. Second, it's inspired by God. And I loved how Pete said, all of it's inspired by God, even the parts that we don't like so much. 
I get to demonstrate that today because I don't prefer Psalm 2. So we're going we're gonna to work through that. It's inspired. And that doesn't mean, I don't know if you remember the movie Men in Black, but I think it's a gr- great illustration um, of the alien bodies. Do you remember how they would like inhabit the flesh and the bones of the humans you know, and the animals, you know, and then they would like do, you know, wreak destruction on the world. But like, that's, I think some of our misunderstanding of the Bible is inspired is like, we think that God did the alien, you know, put the flesh on type of deal and then like take the quill and, uh, you know, it's not, that's not what inspired means. Um, inspired. Inspired means that the spirit of God roamed untamed as people reflected on the complexity of the God life and as they wrote these things out. And the spirit of God continues to roam untamed as we try to understand what this says to us so that we can live in the way of Jesus today. That's what inspired means, right? Uh, Third, authoritative. In American evangelicalism, we really teeter on the side of idolatry of the Bible. The Bible is not our authority. Jesus claims authority. Jesus is the authority. The Bible is authoritative because it points to Jesus, right? So when we think that the Bible is our authority, we think that our job is to, is to, is to master it so that we can either live a good moral life or whatever it is, when in fact, the whole point is to be mastered by its author, Right? So it's not our authority. Let's actually repent of taking words on a paper and making it our authority. Jesus is our authority. This helps us see him more accurately. Okay, that's authoritative. Um, Fourth, I loved how Pete said it's human and divine, just like Jesus. The way that I talk about this is that the scriptures are streaked with the fingerprints of humanity. That means that different people have different agreements with the truth and with history and with details and facts and all the things in here. That, that it being streaked with the fingerprints of humanity means that God in God's goodness and mercy allowed real human beings to reflect on real complexities and not actually maybe get it right. Because getting it right maybe isn't the point. It's about a people trying to figure out how do we follow Jesus? And it's gonna be messy and complicated and all the things, but even in the complexity, as we're gonna see here this morning, we can still discover Jesus in it, okay? Um, And then fifth, he said it must be interpreted. I love that we're reading Reading While Black. If you're not reading it, please read it. Because I think it actually helps us, I think it confronts the notion that we have interpreted the scriptures in a particular way through the lenses of preference and power and bias. So yes, it needs to be interpreted, but we also have to be very, very humble and cautious with regard to how it's interpreted, who is interpreting it for us, right? Um, And so, in light of that, um, I want to look at Psalm 2. Um, I want to place this uncomfortable for me passage in the larger story. I want to consider how it's streaked with the fingerprints of humanity and points to Jesus. And then um, I'll offer some interpretations to provoke us toward formation together as a family, okay? That's what we're going to do here this morning. So um, I told you to go to, to um, 1 Samuel 8. Um, Let's go over to Psalm 2, though. (laughs) 
But keep your finger in First Samuel chapter eight, because well, I like it better. Um, Psalm two. Just as an overview, there are three voices. The first voice is the, the voice of global rulers. The second voice is the voice of God. And the third voice is the voice of the Messiah, which is different than Jesus. The Messiah just simply means God's anointed one, or in this case, the King of Israel. All right? In summary, the voice of the global rulers sounds like this in verses one through three. We want liberation from God's rule. And the way we're gonna get liberation is through the violent overthrow of God's king. Then the voice of God emerges. God laughs, ha, 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 ha. And then God gets angry, <laughs> right? And then God points to his representative, the Messiah, the anointed one, his king. And then we have the voice of the king emerge, which frankly sounds like a typical Near Eastern monarch. He claims to be the son of God. He claims divine authority to rule on God's behalf, which carried a divine endorsement of exaggerated violence against his enemies. And then he says, submit to me and you'll survive. So in summary, Psalm 2 says this, our enemies seek our destruction. Our king is God's anointed and our savior. Our enemies will be destroyed because God is on our side. Our enemies will survive only if they, quote, kiss the king, that is, submit to our king. So let me just pause, take a look at the screen. When you're honest, for how many of us was this the Christian worldview that we were given? Now, this passage played a role in the life of the community. Psalm 2 was the coronation liturgy, so this is what would have been read over the king when he was crowned. And what it would have accomplished is like the, the guarantee of authority of the king, but it would also kind of create a sense of safety or security or strength for the people. Like they loved the idea that God is on our side, God will vanquish our enemies, and we're gonna be just fine because of it. Now, as I, I've looked at this passage, um, it seems to align with the larger worldview of Israel, especially upon their entrance of Canaan and all the way forward, okay? So here was Israel's worldview as I understand it in the Hebrew scriptures. God was exclusively for them. God's favor rested uniquely on them. Second, their anointed leader represented the reign of God. Third, their leader's bloodlust was an exact representation of God's bloodlust. And fourth, their use of violence against their enemies or irritants was endorsed by God. Now, here's the thing. Gosh, it got quiet in here. Like, let's keep up the high, you know? You see, like, this is, all right? Like, this is why Psalm 2 is hard. Okay? 
Every people group in the ancient Near East believed these, myth, these myths for themselves, which meant that this worldview was not distinct. It was not set apart for Israel. Rather, this worldview for Israel made them ethnocentric enemy haters with a place-based God just like everyone else. Let me say that again. This worldview made Israel ethnocentric enemy haters with a place-based God just like everyone else. Whew. Three big problems with that for our purposes today. First of all, Israel's bloodline was selected not because God loved them more. God selected Israel's bloodline for two reasons. First, he wanted a family to put on display a different kind of king and kingdom within creation. A king and kingdom marked by enemy love rather than elimination. The second reason God chose Israel's bloodline is because God was eventually going to enter into the story as a human being and he needed a bloodline through which to emerge. Second major problem, God is not place-based. God is not a national deity. All throughout the Hebrew scriptures, God says over and over and over, my kingship is cosmic. It's for everyone, it's for all of creation. I rule over all of which I've created. And the third problem with this worldview, and this is what we're gonna dive into a little bit more today, is that it was never God's design that we would be led by a king, a human king that is. And so here lies the uniqueness, I think, of a passage like Psalm 2. With my lenses of power and advantage, I can read Psalm 2 and discover a God who is for me, a God who will violently vanquish my enemies on my behalf, a God who will raise up a leader through whom my salvation will come. I can read all of that, and frankly, it sits pretty well for me. That feels good and natural and true and beautiful. But what we tend to miss is that the presence of a human king's coronation in the scripture is not cause for celebration. Rather, it, it shows our rebellion. We refuse God as king, we declare our independence, and we choose to follow human tyrants over a loving God. They did then, I argue that we do today. We refuse God as king, we declare our independence, and we choose to follow human tyrants instead of a loving God. Let's go to where this all began. You don't have to turn there, but Genesis chapter one. Yeah, you can flip to 1 Samuel 8, because now we're gonna live there in, in just a second. Genesis chapter one, God begins to create not out of deficiency, but out of desire. Isn't that cool? God needed nothing, but God began to spoke existence into being because the most loving thing that the creator could do was to expand the volume of creation to share God's self with. Amazing. And as the 
narrative goes in Genesis 1, at least, God begins to speak existence into being and then does something unique with humanity. God fashions us in his image, exhales life into us, and then commissions us to display the rule and reign of God, not through coercion and domination, but through stewardship and co-creation. We were fashioned as beloved image bearers of God and commissioned as royal representatives to steward creation and to co-create within it. That's what it meant to put on display the rule and reign of God. Two chapters later, by Genesis 3, their arrangement didn't work for us anymore. We wanted to be kings and queens, and so we reached for the fruit of power, declared our independence. And when we did, shalom was shattered and all hell broke loose, literally. And yet God, our king, neither destroyed nor abandoned us. Rather, God drew near. And throughout the generations, God continued to draw near and make promises to real human beings like Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. All will be restored if you allow me to be king again. And for generations, we struggled with the arrangement. And so God kept sending down prophets and anointing these prophets to remind us of our vocation as royal representatives rather than kings and queens. And we struggled with the arrangement, and we struggled with it. And all at once, we concluded our struggle and declared our independence once more. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Samuel is the prophet in the neighborhood. He's trusted, he's wise. Over and again, he reminds the people, our vocation is to be royal representatives who steward and co-create rather than coerce and dominate. He had two sons. His sons were dishonest and greedy. That weren't their names, that was their characterization. It's who they were. And what they did because of their dishonesty and greed, they compromised the office of prophet. People no longer trusted the voice of the prophet. And so in, um, in verse four, then all of the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel. He's an old dude at, at this point, seasoned. He's seasoned at Ramah and said to him, behold, you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us just like all the other nations. We want a king like everybody else. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you. They've rejected me from being their king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And if you read verses 10 through 18, here's what God is saying to them. You think your way is better than mine? Go for it. Which is crazy, hey? Because we like to think that God is still coercive in his desire for us to be righteous. No, 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 no. Don't, do, don't, don't do that. Don't run your, no, he goes, you want, you want to run your way? Run fast and hard. Go for it. Choose a human king, but know that he will be a tyrant. And you know how the people respond? They say, fine, 
We would prefer a tyrant who looks like us over a God we can't control. Whew. So from that point forward, the community worked really hard to build their kingdoms their way. And I don't know if you spent much time in the book of Amos, but I'd play with Amos for a little bit, maybe this afternoon or in your, in your early morning readings this week. Because what Amos is doing is he's lamenting what happens when human kings rule. He says things like this, we've exploited people for personal and national benefit. We've cheated our neighbors to enlarge our borders. We've owned and traded human beings to enlarge our bank accounts. An ancient critique with pretty contemporary implications. Take a look. And just like Samuel foretold here, the people started to suffer under tyrant kings. They began to cry out for God to reinstate himself as king. They prayed a prayer that went something like this. God, would your kingdom come? Would your will be done back on earth as it is in heaven? Other prophets like Isaiah began to remind the people of God's promises to Abraham and David that one day God would reinstate himself as king and begin to usher in his kingdom. In Isaiah 61, Isaiah writes that the kingdom of God is going to be near when you see God's tangible presence on the planet. When wrong things start to be made right again, it's gonna look like justice rolling and healing pervading and joy saturating. You're gonna experience liberation from chains, both seen and unseen. So the prophets are reminding God is going to become king again. And for 700 more years after Israel, we toiled under the pain of tyrant kings. One of them actually heard that a new king had been born and ordered infanticide in the city of Bethlehem, killing all the little Hebrew baby boys. Tyrants. Now into that milieu, Jesus emerges through the bloodline of Abraham and the seed of King David. And we read that after his baptism in the Jordan River by his cousin John the baptizer in a wilderness wander that reinforced his identity as a beloved, he returned to his home in Nazareth, walked into a synagogue, and when he sat down, they presented him the Isaiah scroll of all things. He unrolled it to Isaiah 61, and he read that the kingdom of God is at hand. Wrong things are about to be made right, not through violent overthrow, but through self sacrifice, that God's restorative reach is going to reach through our bloodline to all of the nations and to a people who had an ethnocentric enemy-hating worldview. The idea of God's rule and reign being made real through self-sacrifice versus violence did not sit well with them. Jesus was not the Messiah that they were looking for, so they tried to kill him unsuccessfully this time. And from the point of the Isaiah scroll forward, this way of life and love marked by self-sacrifice became the unshakable focus of Jesus' life. In everything that he did and said, he exposed restoration through self-sacrifice 
as the tangible demonstration of the rule and reign of the creator. Restoration through self-sacrifice rather than domination through enemy elimination. Unjust status quos were disrupted because of it. Healing went viral. Joy replaced despair. Folks were unshackled from insidious chains of oppression. The rule and reign of God as demonstrated by Jesus started to remake the world, but it threatened many kings and kingdoms down here. So eventually they killed him. And in mockery, they put a sign on his cross that read, King of the Jews. Now here's the great irony, that rather than silencing the revolution, the cross and the resurrection coronated Jesus as king. Ephesians 1, Paul writes that the resurrection confirms the kingship of Jesus that King Jesus sits enthroned. Hebrews 2 says that he's crowned with glory and honor. Philippians 2 says that Jesus is exalted high, high, high above all. The cross and resurrection declare Jesus as king, but not of the Jews, of the cosmos, just like has always been true. And his kingdom is coming not through the violence of religion and politics. Jesus' kingdom is coming not through our religious affiliations and political preferences. Jesus' kingdom is coming through the self-sacrifice of his royal representatives. That's it. So what do we do with a passage like Psalm 2? Well, let me, let me share a couple things that has been stirring in me, and I wonder if it's stirring something similar in you. The first is that I've come to appreciate that within our scriptures, there's space for the visceral longings of human beings. In this case, the visceral longing of the human being is that their enemies would be eliminated. And I have to be honest that there remain times in my life when I wouldn't mind the elimination of my enemies. I bet it's true for all of us. But just because the longing for the elimination of our enemies is in scripture does not make it good theology. It doesn't mean that it's God's heart So I appreciate, again, scripture is streaked with the fingerprints of humanity. I appreciate that there's space in our sacred text for the visceral longings of human beings that isn't good theology because it actually gives me permission to be in process. My theology is not set and established. It's centered on Jesus and it's continuing to evolve and grow more spacious. Please help me, God. Second, I need to confront the bias that was fused into the faith that I was given. The reason that I have rarely had a problem with Psalms 2 is because I grew up between a military base and a dairy farm in rural Wisconsin. 
I grew up into a faith that deified American politics and fierce militarism. I grew up trading cards that were like, do you remember the Desert Storm? Operation Desert Storm was the first major war campaign of my lifetime. The baseball card company Tops made a set of cards that deified and celebrated Operation Desert Storm. I collected the whole set. Storm and Norman Schwarzkopf, Colin Powell, the Tomahawk missile. I knew all the names of our big destroyers. I was taught in my social location that our military is the righteous right hand of God. And so when I read Psalm 2, I read it through the lenses of my origin, my origin stories. And I have to confess that there is a severe bias that's built into the way that I read Psalm 2. And by God's grace, I think it's beginning to evolve slowly, slowly. Third, I have to confess my continued ambivalence when power is abused and I benefit. Power continues to be abused in this city, in our state, in our country, in our world, in ways that benefit me. There are ways that I, I'm aware of it, there are ways that I'm unaware of it, and I have to confess that I am still ambivalent too often when power is abused and I benefit. I think that's sin in my life. Fourth, I need to repent of any theology that endorses violence. Because violence diminishes the image of God in another. Any theology that diminishes the imago Dei in another is bad theology. It does not square with the one we see in Jesus. Who, by the way, was the only one who ever took us beyond neighbor love to enemy love. We don't get to treat our enemies with polite indifference, much less violent elimination. Our task is to love them. How? Sacrificially, that's John 13, 34 and 35. So any theology that backs the violence against another human being, it's bad theology. I need to keep repenting of that. And fifth, I need to embrace the truth of Psalm 2. That when I kiss the Son, when I submit to King Jesus and choose the way of self-sacrifice, then and only then does broken stuff get fixed in me, in you, and around all of us. So let me pause for a moment and ask, what's the spirit maybe stirring in you right now?